Second book of Kings, chapter 1. A real prophet, that's the name of this title because I couldn't come up with anything else that, that was just not very Christian-like. I mean, the prophet who slaughters people just didn't seem to be the way to go. And uh, anyway, brief introduction. Of course, to the Jews, it was one book of kings. But the scrolls would have been so large, they had to separate the material. And now we have two books of kings, same with Chronicles and Samuel. It, uh, <clears throat> the, book, the books of kings from about 970 years before the birth of Christ to about 560 years before his birth uh, was compiled by many uh, godly men and also uh, through the captivity. First Kings covers about 125 years of history. We are in this first chapter about 70 years after the nation was divided, the split. The second book, the first one covers 125 years. The second one covers about 270 years. So a lot of history going on here. Um, at the end of this chapter, we have a note about all of that. This uh, total of 390 years thereabout of history. Now, God is careful not to put dates in the scripture so that we could, you know, pinpoint it was on this day that Elijah did this because I think he knows that uh, there would be men that would create burdensome holidays on the people and create shrines, and that is not what he is after. One of the great lessons from this second book of Kings, as in the first book of Kings also, I think is uh, summed up in Proverbs chapter 29, verse 12. If a ruler pays attention to lies, all his servants become wicked. Now, when Solomon wrote that, he's speaking about the court of a king. People lying to the king, trying to, you know, manipulate him. But the Holy Spirit, of course, takes everything to, into the spiritual realm. And here we have kings that have followed the lies of devils concerning God. And the people who join them become wicked. We see that in this chapter. We'll see 102 of them slain by the prophet. And those kings during the, these, this in this northern kingdom, they loved lies about God. They loved to follow man-made gods. So God produced prophets who loved the truth to counter them. Elijah was the dominant prophet in, chap in the first book of Kings, and he's dominant in the first two chapters of the second book, but then Elisha becomes the prophet to deal with. And as we look at Elijah, of course, doling out the judgments with fire in, in this chapter, Elisha was more of a man of grace, and yet, yet he was no nonsense too. When they were mocking him, he dispatched two bears to deal with the uh, adolescents. And, and that, we'll get to that, of course, much later. Perhaps a good alternate name for the books of Kings would be, Can You Believe These Guys? <laughs> that would have been just a good name for it, or, or at least a, you know, a subtitle <clears throat> to the title. So here we are, first uh, chapter. Verse 1, Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. Well, we read last week that Ahab was at a venture. An archer took a 
bow and arrow and fired the arrow and it hit um, Ahab uh, between the armor and it ended up killing him, of course. And now his son Ahaziah comes to the throne. So this is a new administration. And Moab, who Moab was subdued by King David, they're rebelling because they were being oppressed. The northern kingdom was really laying on the taxes, uh, making them a tributary kingdom. We won't get to the actual response, military response until chapter 3. But we go to chapter 3 briefly, you look at verse 4, and there we'll, we get an idea of the oppression that they were under from this kingdom. Misha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, and he regularly paid the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. And so he was cutting into their economy. The Jews were living high on the hog, you could say, or high on the lamb. And uh, the Moabites wanted to get out from this. Well, this is how everybody was doing it back then. So uh, this king, though, Ahaziah, he's not going to live to respond to the rebellion. His son, Jehoram, will... Jehoshaphat will, will join with him in this alliance and in the Edom king, and that's when these three kings are out in the desert about to starve. So that's just a little bit of background what's going on. In verse 2, now Ahaziah fell through the lattice of his upper room in Samaria and was injured. So he sent messengers and said to them, Go inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this injury. <laughs> well, if... Evidently, he had a, a rooftop area that was uh, petitioned with, a, had a lattice, perhaps even a lattice, sort of a, a rail, a fence that would keep you from falling off. You, you say, well, what did he do? Did he just lean on it or a balcony, a balcony, balcony type environment? Did he lean on the rail and, you know, it just collapsed and he plunged to the, to the ground? Was he dancing and twirling around? <laughs> As they men should not be doing that near lattice up on a rooftop. Anyway, um, the lattice, of course, was nice. It let sunlight in, it breezes in, give you some degree of privacy, but this one did not, um, did not support his weight. He crashed through it, and the details are left out. We read of nothing good happening to this king. It's just going to get worse for him. He made his choice, and uh, his gods did just what his gods can do, nothing for him except doom his soul. And it says here, so he sent messengers and said, go inquire of Baalzebub, Baalzebub, the god of Ekron. It's almost like somebody just speaking gibberish, Baalzebub. You know, just, uh, anyway, he's dying to cling to these baseless pseudo-deities. He's sending his servants 40 miles one way just to find out from these, these prophets of a non-existent God, this spiritual inquiry, and it is spiritual, but it's the wicked side. Uh, his spiritual injury, injury, of course, is worse than his physical injury. Now, according to Genesis 3, Satan came as a liar in the beginning, and his first target was true religion, true beliefs in God, concerning God. And, of course, he's been attacking that ever since. It worked so well for him the first time it's worked after that. 
According to Genesis 4, he came as a murderer through Cain. His second target was human life through religion. It was a religious deal. Religion can be dangerous stuff because of Satan. And, of course, Cain was exalting himself, angry with God, and angry with the godly, too. That's going on here. This, this contest in this chapter and is going on in our life, in this culture, perhaps unlike ever before. Um, there's always been this war. It's just this one is so ridiculously, the cultural wars that we're facing now, it's just so ridiculously dark and satanic. How can you deny the spiritual activity of, of Satan? Anyway, he, um, he attacks the view of people in the home, of Christians. That's a story with Cain and Abel also. Home is supposed to be the school for character. Well, one of them, the, one of the, the, the dominant one, the first ones, that's ideally speaking, where we learn to love, we learn to listen, we learn to obey, we learn to help. It's where we learn to be responsible before God, before men and self, ideally speaking. And there are many homes that don't have this, and they often produce people who are indecent. Well, they produce Christians who know this, and they depart. Fortunately, I think, many of those children raised in godly homes who stray come back. And I would like to, I believe, that that number is larger than lower. Um, I think it's a lot larger than what we might think. So if you have children who are prodigals, who are wasting away their spiritual influence, don't give up, keep at it. Satan knows this, and so he raises up those who have the ability to be used by him in a very special way, as he did with Cain. He has a bond with these types of people, and he produces heretics and pagans uh, through the the lack of uh, accurate information, just giving them inaccurate information concerning God. So where I'm going with this, there are these... Philistines up in Ekron that serve these fake gods, and there are these Jews in Samaria that are uh, uh, interested in them. Later, we'll read of a king who conquers the people, the, the, the pagan people, and says, you know what? I like their god. I'm going to have their god be my god. This is insane. Uh, the, the Yahweh gives you the victory, and now you're going to Again, throw it all away. Anyway, he says, ask whether I will recover from this injury. It's interesting. He asks um, for a prognosis. It's puzzling, is it not? He's not asking for a cure. It's just, um, this is what he asked, and this is how it's reported to us. Verse 3, but the angel of Yahweh said to Elijah the Tishbite, arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say to them, is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Baal Zebub, the God of Ekron? Well, it is God's prerogative to interfere with anything in humanity, anything in creation. It's his creation. And uh, I like that God knew to send Elijah on this mission. Knowing what's coming, Elijah was the guy, not Micaiah. Nothing against Micaiah, 
or Micaiah, or against Obadiah or other men of God, but Elijah is the one for this mission. Now, at times, the angel of Yahweh uh, is an appearance of Yahweh himself in human form. Uh, other times, it is an, a messenger, a created being sent by Yahweh. Um, it's not always clear. It's not clear here if this is Yahweh himself or, or a messenger. It, it really, both are appropriate. It's just exciting when we know that this is, uh, you know, again, one of my favorite ones is when uh, the Lord appears to the parents of Samson, Manoah and his wife. It's just such a, a, a human interaction. You know, he panics and she's like, what are you panicking for? You know, well, if we see God, we're going to die. He said, well, you just saw him and you're still alive. And, doesn't make any sense. It's so husband and wife-ish. So anyway, arise and go up and meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them. Now this reminds us of Philip, God saying to Philip, leave Samaria where there's this great ministry going on. We'll get this in Acts chapter 8. And I want you to go to the desert where there's only one guy. (laughs) And uh, Philip gives no lip. He goes right to it and leaves the 99 for the one. And whenever the Lord leaves the 99... It means he leaves the 99 in good care. It would be reckless, cruel, and ungodlike to just, well, I don't care if the 99 gets slaughtered. I really want this one back. That this just would be uh, senseless theology. Anyhow, uh, it reminds us of that. In Psalm 31, a psalm where the psalmist is struggling, but he, he's getting hold of his faith. We read, I have hated those who regard useless idols, but I trust in Yahweh. That's the kind of thing that people need to hear from us Christians. Jonah, even Jonah, I am a Hebrew and I serve the God of Hebrews. You know, even though he was all messed up, he's still, this is who I am. I'm just having a little spat right now, <clears throat> having a tough time with God right now. But that's, that was his identity. He didn't cover that part up. It would have been a good time to do it, though. Psalm 31 again, verse 14. But as for me, I will trust in you, O Yahweh. I say, you are my God. Well, this is what's lacking from this king. And this is why a real prophet is being sent uh, to intercept these uh, messengers going to fake prophets. May God do that with us. May God send us to intercept those who are going to the wrong place to get information about God. Maybe they're going to a mosque or maybe they're going to a kingdom hall and maybe God can send us to intercept them. Anyway, he asked this question. He's saying in this question, let me just be clear about this. Because no God in Israel, because there's no God in Israel, you're going to inquire of Beelzebub? The God of Ekron? I just want to make sure this is what's happening. <laughs> of course he knows what's happening. But he's, 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 he's doing his work as a real prophet. He's exposing this nonsense. And the meaning, of course, uh, having no gods before me is what Yahweh has commanded. You're not to acknowledge that there are alternate powers in the universe that you can appeal to without exciting my wrath. That's what God is saying. Exodus 22, verse 20. He who sacrifices to any god except Yahweh only, he shall be utterly destroyed. And so the people were to enforce this commandment. 
but instead, most of them trampled it throughout their history. And, of course, whenever we look at the problems that befell Israel, we find them in the church, alive and well. We can never look down at Israel and say, can you believe those Jews? You could say that, but you'd be wrong. You have to say sinners. Sinners in the hands of a loving God, what are they going to do? Because no God is in Israel, are you going to bowels above? Are you consulting alternate ideas of God? And a God of Ekron, a people who you're supposed to have, you should have pushed these people out because I warned you that if you didn't, they would be an irritant to you and they would convert you. And so it is a complete insult to God, an absolute denial of his identity. But lost people, they really are truly lost. And we have to remember that and not be too hard in our heart, firm for sure against their, their error, but to remember that Spiritual blindness is a very real condition. And those that have it don't know how to get out of it on their own. And again, to consult alternate, pseudo-alternate gods is the equivalent to saying that the voice of God is inadequate or I don't believe it is true. And of course, that's one of the first of the Bible's not true. The Bible has this contradiction. The Bible, and they don't, they don't know what they're talking about. And many times they don't even want to believe what the truth is. All idolatry in Scripture, according to Scripture, is regarded as devil worship. And the Jews, the righteous Jews, understood it that way. And so does Paul in the New Testament. It's continued in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 10, uh, verse 20, it's worth reading because it's a lamentation in Paul. It's, a, it's, it's love. It's like, I've, I've led you to Christ. What are you doing? Rather, the things which the Gentiles sacrificed, they sacrificed to demons and not to God. When he says sacrifice, they're religion. They're going to church. Their version of religion. And he, so he says, they sacrifice to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. So it's not just something that's cute and passive. It's something that's very real. And this is brought up in Leviticus 17 and Deuteronomy 32 and Psalm 106 and other places of the Bible. Now, originally, this name, Baalzebub, now, this, this is a little tricky, so I'm going to try to breeze through it. Originally, Baalzebul referred to uh, the Baal, the prince, the ruler, their God, was Lord. But the Israelites disdainfully referred to him as Baal Zebub, the God of flies. Now, some, some will argue and say, well, they, he was rightly the God of flies because the people believed that flies carry disease, but he was Lord over those flies that carry the disease. I don't think that is really what's going on, and I'll tell you why in a minute. I think that... The Philistines called him Baal Zebul. But the Jews, the righteous Jews, and the, one, the ones that are giving us the scripture, they are, lamp, they are lampooning him in, in writing out these sarcastic statements. They say, no, he's not Baal Zebul, he's Baal Zebub. And the, 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 the phonetics are very close. By the time we come to the New Testament, it became a solid term Baal Zebub for Satan's gods, Satan's created gods, these fake gods. 
And so we have a third from Zebul to Zebub to Zebel. Now, when you get to, and which means Lord of the Dunghill. <laughs> so they've moved. He's, he's, the, he's the Lord of the, uh, he's the, the, the Lord of the princes, the ruler. Baal is ruler. And the Jews came along and said, Baal is Lord of the flies. But by the time Christ had come along, they were saying, Baal is the ruler of a dunghill. And this is biblical sarcasm. So Matthew chapter 12, verse 24. Now, when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons by Baal Zebub. But the original, the Chaldean, it's, it's, a, a, it's, a, it's a parody. And it is uh, Beelzebel, the god of the dung hill. And that's how it was understood. And I don't know, I hope I didn't confuse you with all that. The bottom line is, because there's a lot of twists and turns with the language. Even to this day, etymology is tricky stuff. You know, you can come up with, well, where did that word come from? And you can end up with two uh, opposite or contradicting opinions. And both of them may have some grounds for their opinion. Well, it's the same with this name. But knowing the Jews as we know them, knowing the language that they use concerning these idols, uh, it is certainly right in line with how they treated these uh, demonic gods. And so, bottom line is, the Philistines did not call him Baal-zebub. They called him Baal-zebul. But the Jews were saying, we're not going to call him, he's not lord of anything to us but flies. And then later, yeah, he's worse. He's, he's the dunghill. Anyway, verse 4, And therefore, thus says Yahweh, You shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah departed. So God gets to Elijah. He says, I want you to go to this king, and I want you to tell him he's not going to survive. You know, he's not asking for this, but I'm, I'm giving it to him nonetheless. Death won't be the worst thing that happens to this, this man. Idolatry was the sole source of the fall of, of both kingdoms, north and south. Uh, they're separated by a hundred years or so, but uh, it's serious, very serious business. And I, I don't know, again, if we, we make this clear, the Jews or the Christians in the days of the apostles, they really didn't have to deal with idolatry too much in the Jewish people. That had been kind of beaten out of them through the captivity. And they never really got back into direct idolatry. Uh, they got into other things. So, uh, and, and just uh, corruption was one of the large ones. And so in the New Testament, you know, the, the, in the Gospels, idolatry is really not the issue. It's them recognizing Christ uh, without corruption. Without, they're, you know, trying to cover up their corruption. And Paul, then he goes to the Gentiles, then idolatry becomes an issue again. Because they were, they were all over we will get to, um, you know, Satan's gifted children. We get to Philippi, and there's the little girl going before Paul and, and uh, Silas saying, Oh, these are the ones that have come to show us the way of salvation. And just began to irritate Paul. He says, something about this little girl that is really bugging me. And he figures it out. It's demonic. God was, uh, you know, so Satan, he, hell has gifts too. And... Uh, she was a, a gifted corrupter, an unauthorized distributor. So if, uh, you know, if you come out with a product and everybody loves it, and then people are making counterfeits of your product and, not, and leaving you out, 
You know, you have you understand that that's a problem. Well, make it spiritual, and it's a bigger problem. Uh, people trying to counterfeit God, use His name, but really, if they get to tell about God and are received, what are they going to tell about God? Well, because they are Satan, enemy, they're going to do damage. So, 1 Corinthians, again, chapter 10, verse 20, Rather the things that the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You read that today to some people and they think, Oh, demons, come on. You know, we dress up like devils. Because it's no sin. And it's just crazy. You want to see the devil's work? It's, all, it's in hospitals, it's in prisons, it's in cemeteries, it's all over the place. Every key on the chain tells you that the devil is at work, or else you wouldn't have to lock your stuff up. Verse 5, And when the messengers returned to him, he said to them, Why have you come back? So remember now, the prophet intercepts the messengers going to Ekron. So they turn around and they go back. Verse 6, So they said to him, A man came to meet us and said to us, Go return to the king who sent you and say to him, Thus says Yahweh, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So the messengers deliver the message. <laughs> they were deputized. They didn't know it. Even though it, it seems here they did not know who Elijah was. They said a man. And uh, yet Elijah such a commanding figure. They obey him. <laughs> they don't say, who are you? We're on the king's business, out of the way. And we know arrogance flourished amongst these, uh, this, in this king's court because when they come to arrest Elijah, they're very rude. Well, at least two of them. And the operative word there were very rude. Uh, anyway, verse 7. Uh, then he said to them, now this is the king responding to what they told him. A hairy man came out. <laughs> what kind of a man was it who came up to meet you and told you these words? So he's already suspicious that Elijah is out there. and Because Elijah is the one that dealt with his dad, Ahab. Elijah dealt with Jezebel, this is probably his mother. And Elijah will deal uh, with anybody that he is sent to because he is such a lion prophet. Uh, well, let me rephrase that. He's a, a lion-like prophet <laughs> because lion sounds like lying, and we don't want that confusion. But uh, anyway, he, um, he's, he's a stylish prophet with the rugged look. <laughs> As in as opposed to the opulence of the king in the robes. Elijah's wardrobe said, I don't need you, and I am not like you. And he pretty much said it to everybody. <laughs> the same was with John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist was a priest. Remember, his father was in the temple ministering to the altar of incense. And, and uh, when, he, when he got a, an angel visited him there. So John, the Baptist, had every right to serve in that temple, but we never read of him doing it. Same with Jeremiah. I know I say this a lot because I, I, I get something from it. These men were nonconformist. If you weren't lining up with God, they weren't lining up with you. Now, some men can do God's work and work amongst the enemy. We covered that with Obadiah. 
the king confided in him, and he used his position to save lives, saved a hundred prophets, at least. But this John the Baptist, who was an Elijah-like character, the same spirit uh, of, of Elijah as men go, was in John the Baptist. John the Baptist was kind of, you know, uh, wide at the shoulders, broad at the shoulders, and narrow at the hip. And everybody knew he didn't give any lip to big John the Baptist. <laughs> he wrote a song about him. Anyway, um, <laughs> Luke chapter 7, Jesus. Now, so they come to Christ, on uh, John's disciples. John is in jail, and he's wondering why he's in jail. <laughs> he knows the charges against him. He just doesn't understand why the Messiah hasn't delivered him. He has no doubt, well, he had no doubt, that Christ was Messiah, even though he's a cousin. And so he sends his disciples and ask him, are you the one or do we look for another? And, and Jesus, you know, ministering and sort of matter of fact, go tell John the things you see and hear, the lame see, the blind, well, the, the, blame, <laughs> the blind see, the lame are healed, lepers are cleansed, the gospel is preached. Go tell John that. He's such a man of the word, he'll know what's going on. And then after they left, to make sure that the audience did not think lesser of John, Christ says to the audience, Luke chapter 7, verse 24, when the messengers of John departed, he began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. He said, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who are gorgeously apparelled and live in luxury are in king's courts. But what did you go to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. Man, he's just, he's just like loving on John. And this is, John, this is Elijah. Elijah's he's not dressed like the, in the king's robes. Remember the king Jehoshaphat and Ahab, they put on their robes up on the threshing floor. Well, John the Bat, uh, Elijah had nothing to do with that kind of stuff. Unless, of course, Yahweh was exalted. I bet you, if you when we get to heaven, he'll be pretty well decked out, but... Uh, so no more camel skins, huh? Yeah, kind of. It doesn't work up here. Uh, <laughs> I just hope there's no need to get haircuts in heaven. I hate haircuts. And, uh, it's, it, I, you know, I don't know what I would do if I have to still get haircuts. It's, it's the biggest waste of time. Anyway, I want G.I. Joe hair. Some of, <laughs> some of you don't know who G.I. Joe was. His hair was perfect, man. Anyway, verse 8. I don't want Keith Green hair. Because so, I'm afraid the birds, you know, they'll... Never mind. Let's come back. Verse 8. So, so they answered him, a hairy man wearing a leather belt around his waist. And he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. <laughs> you can, you, he, I knew it. This is what's happening here. Uh, who else would send my messengers? I have the audacity to interfere with the king's messengers, but Elijah, a hairy man or a man in hairy garb. The, the Hebrew allows both. It leaves us wondering, is his, was it like his arms are all hairy, you know? <laughs> or was he a hairy guy? Or is it his clothing? And we're kind of left up in the air. We know his clothing was. He's, he's got the, you know... I believe he was hairy too, because you can't eat locusts and bugs and stuff and not just get hairy. That's my thinking. Anyway, he wore an untanned skin with the hair on the outside and not up against his body. And this garment 
was uh, became he, he he set a trend. <laughs> His trend he set a trend for everybody. Uh, uh, the prophets would emulate Elijah wearing this garb. In fact, the false prophets began to dress like Elijah. And the prophet Zechariah calls them out. He says, And it shall be in that day that every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. They will not wear a robe of coarse hair to deceive. So they're not going to be dressing up like, Oh, look, I'm like John the Baptist. You can trust me. You know, I guess the equivalent today is wearing a collar okay, you can automatically trust me, I'm wearing this, and that's um, not true. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. And in that case, the sheepskins were worn. But John the Baptist, again, Matthew 3, John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. I didn't need to put the wild honey and locusts in, but... That's the good part. Uh, this part about the leather belt, you could just see John, you know, don't make me take my belt off. Uh, like, a, you know, your dads used to say that, no? You're, anyway, don't make me take my belt off, boy. Okay, okay, calm down. Do a little Tai Chi, relax. <laughs> that would surely get the belt if you talked like that. Um, I don't know, when my dad would look at me, I tried to shrink. <laughs> you know, try to be really small. Anyway, uh, verse 9. Then the king sent to him a captain of 50 with his 50 men. So he went up to him, and there he was sitting on the top of a hill, and he spoke to him. A man of God, the king has said, come down. Okay, so this is a, a, a rifle platoon today. I mean, why, why, why a whole platoon to arrest one prophet? You know what he did to the prophets of Baal? There were 400 of them. Uh, maybe they figured, you know, the crowd, or maybe they would just show off, uh, you know, I, it doesn't tell us. But it is, to me, overkill. Um, I mean, 50 guys, you, you, they can't even grab one person. There's not enough space for all the hands. <laughs> so, But Elijah's not fleeing this time. He's not running. He's sitting up on the hill because he's a real prophet. And they're going to get a dose of that. He's learned his lesson. Elijah has when, with the Lord. And he spoke to him. Man of God, the king has said, come down. He should have said, please. That's not a little thing. Because when we get to the guy who does it right, you know, this man is, he's rude. And this is the king's court. He's arrogant. He thinks he's got the authority. And he doesn't have to speak nicely to them. And when he says, man of God, he is, um, he's not, saying, I'm a believer and I'm respecting you. He's, he's actually mocking him. And um, there are people who still are this rude in the service of their ruler, Satan, even if they don't know that it's Satan. A descript temporary title for Satan is the ruler of this world. And the whole world is under the sway of this, the filthy sway of this ruler. John chapter 12, Jesus said, Now is the judgment of this world, and now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And that process was beginning there. Incidentally, uh, Satan was in the way of really people getting into heaven before Christ came. And when Christ came, he told the 
outlaw on the cross today, you'll be with me in paradise because I've cast that guy out the way. I mean, you know, your sins are forgiven. He's the one that introduced that to humanity, and Christ is the one that blew it away. But people still die this way because uh, they are rude in their service of their king, and that's what's going to happen to this man and those with him. Manners count. Don't you, you notice it right away. If you have any decency, uh, you know, not everybody is raised in a good home. Not everybody has a good mother or a good father. Uh, but still, they can learn decency just by the way they, they are made to, to, to feel. So if you're not raised to be polite, and all of a sudden people are treating you politely, you can learn and say, you know what, I like this better, and I'm going to emulate this. And uh, it is disappointing to see rude Christians. Uh, many times in ministry, people have inter- in- just interrupted me speaking to somebody because they thought their, what they had to say was more important than whatever the other person and I were talking about. And you just notice this. Well, these men were on a, another level of rudeness. I'm not saying um, if I could, I would have brought fire down on those people. I may have opted for a lesser punishment, like... Make their shoes disappear. They have to walk out there barefooted on the hot asphalt. All right. I guess, <laughs> I guess you, you really want to see the fire, huh? I'm trying to be nice. Okay, coming back to this. So when this captain says, man of God, as I mentioned, he's not an ally with the prophet, and he is mocking the prophet, Elijah, his reply will bypass the captain's rudeness, And uh, let's go to verse 10. So Elijah answered and said to the captain of 50, If I am a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. And fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. And that is, you know, I've always loved the way he introduces his action. Or if I'm a man of God. (laughs) And then boom. Um, He did not need a jawbone of a donkey to deal with these guys. This is not the first time lightning has taken out opponents or those on the wrong side of God. It was Dathan who got together a little committee to challenge Moses and his authority. Uh, Incidentally, the rod of Aaron, you know, it wasn't very big. The rod of Aaron was not a staff, probably about, well, not quite four feet. You say, how do you know that? I have it in my garage. No, because it was put in the Ark of the Covenant. And we know what size the Ark of the Covenant was. And I don't think anybody would have said, so we got to cut it in half. I don't think anybody would have done that. And my point is, so when, I was going to preach on this, but now here I am. It's like, you're blowing it. So, so uh, when he puts the staff down and it swallows up pharaohs, magicians, serpents, you know, you think of Charlton Heston and these giant snakes. And they're probably little, you know, the snake doesn't have to be big to kill you, especially if he, sh- he shoots you. Okay, but it's true if he could shoot you. Anyway, so, you know, the rod, these snakes that they're dealing with, they don't have to be big snakes. And um, I I think that's important because those kind of things to me, those are questions that I need to satisfy in my head. Anyway, the challenge of Dathan was against this authority of Moses. And that rod spoke of the authority of Moses and the grace of God also. Nabad and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, when they, you know, mingled man-made fire with God's fire, God struck them 
and that was it. And so this is yet a, a third time where God is using fire, well, third and fourth. And Elijah, he's not being a hot-headed prophet, intolerant of the innocent people. Uh, he was appointed to proclaim the favor or disdain of God and to administer justice, and he is doing just that. Uh, he, he has the right to condemn and to punish because he is an enforcer. And he was the embodiment of the law of God while he walked in Israel. One of absolute awareness and action of God. In other words, if Elijah saw it, God saw it. That was the statement being made. He's the embodiment of these things. This is what God did to his prophet, and this is what we're looking at. Verse 11, then he sent him to him another captain of 50 with his 50 men. And he answered and said to him, man of God, thus says the king, come down quickly. So this guy's more rude than the first guy. Um, you, they likely thought oh, it was a fluke, coincidence. Lightning struck and, and killed, you know, all I had to do was hit <laughs> close enough and get them all. Uh, so this 51... The first 51, they're dead. Some time has to pass. The word has to get back to the king. Um, probably Somebody's got to collect the 51 bodies, not to think that they just left them there to the scavengers. Well, they could have, but uh, not likely. Anyway, the second officer commands Elijah more forcefully than the first. And uh, you would think they would remember Mount Carmel that Elijah could call fire. There was precedence for this, but they didn't believe these things. And so they came in the name of the wrong king to the wrong prophet. And they were, again, rude and arrogant. And it was their choice. And we know it was their choice to be rude and arrogant because the third guy gets it right. So verse 12. So Elijah answered and said, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven, consume you and your 50 men. And the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. If I was in the range of this and that platoon and I heard the prophet say that, I would have dove for cover. <laughs> I said, I'm not with them. I'm changing teams. Anyway, <laughs> James and John, uh, the disciples of Jesus, they had been on the Mount of Transfiguration and they saw Moses and they saw Elijah, the law and the prophets. Uh, embodied right before them, the Mount of Transfiguration. And they wanted to imitate <laughs> Elijah and call down fire on the enemies of Christ. And Christ, he, he really educates them. There's a rebuke in it, yes, but there's an education too. Instead of just saying, no, I'm not like that. He says, you know, you don't know what spirit you are of. And it's in Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, where Christ corrects them. You may say, well, weren't the soldiers just doing their duty and obeying their commander? Yes, but that did give them no right to ridicule the prophet, to be rude and commanding, and it gave them no right to sympathize with a known idolater in the king. And again, that comes out. But we go back to Proverbs twenty nine twelve, where I tried to introduce the spirit of the people surrounding this wicked king. If a ruler pays attention to lies, all his servants become wicked. And the ruler paid attention to spiritual lies, and his servants became wicked. But they didn't have to be that way. And this is what, again, the third one 
uh, illustrates, verse 13. And he sent a third captain of 50 with his 50 men. And the third captain of the 50 went down, uh, went up, pardon me, and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and pleaded with him and said to him, Man of God, please let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. Well, they say that insanity is to do the same thing with the same results repeatedly. Why would you send a third? I mean, it's a suicide mission. Because they're insane with their arrogance. Arrogance blinds people. It's just going to force his will on him in some way. Anyway, he was, this man was put in a very difficult situation. To obey Ahaziah, the king, would have meant death for him. To go to get, arrest Elijah would have meant death for him. So you know, on that march to Elijah, he's going over in his head. Now, let's see. <laughs> please, pretty please. Sugar on top of the cherry. I mean, he's going all sorts of scenarios. I think when he gets there, he just, it's, it just comes out. He's a better man. And his platoon is there marching. It probably was very quiet. And one guy, did you get your will and testimony? I mean, he just, uh, too bad. We don't have videos. And it came, he came and fell on his knees. Well, because Elijah is now in superhero status, and rightfully so. He pleaded with him, man of God, please let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. So this captain, he's not only wise and polite, he's considerate of the life of, of others. Life's not cheap to him. He intercedes on behalf of those with him. And I would think that, you know, the proverb that says when the ruler pays attention to lies, all his servants become wicked. Well, the other, it goes the other way, too. When a ruler does not pay attention to lies, the, the servants are not wicked. And I think that uh, this was a righteous platoon. Well, I've seen that in the military where you've had certain platoons that just, man, I, I want to be in that platoon. Or I bet you want to be in mine because of the leadership. The leaders were, were, were right on. Um, there were officers and gentlemen, and not all of them were, but many of them were. And you got in a bad group, man. Oh, it was tough. But anyway, uh, this man is an officer and a gentleman, evidently. Verse 14, and he says, he's not finished, right? He doesn't know where this is going to go. Elijah's just sitting there looking at him. Look, fire has come down from heaven and burned up the first two captains of 50s with their 50s. But let my life now be precious in your sight. So 102 men dead because of one rotten man, the king. Ecclesiastes 9.18, wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. One person messes up everything. I had a friend years ago, old, much older than me, but he was a friend nonetheless, and he would say when someone did something goofy, you know, mess up the whole world. And I just liked it. It was emphatic. And it was messing up my world <laughs> when you applied it. Yes, this one person messes up the whole world. Everything I can see. Yeah, you know, there are people like that. And um, anyway, Obadiah, we know he saved 100 men. Well, Elijah cooked 102 of them. Jezebel was unable to protect the 400 prophets of Baal. And uh, from one prophet of Yahweh. And this king was unable to protect 102 souls from judgment when he should have been able to. Evil people, they lose souls. They never protect them. 
Luke 15, likewise I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And that's what it comes down to. Because earlier Jesus said, when, when there were those people that suffered a natural disaster and those that were killed by the government, um, they said, well, these men wicked. And Christ said, unless you likewise repent, unless you likewise repent, you too will perish. You have to stay focused on the eternal things is what Christ was saying. But let my life now be precious in your sight, the bottom of verse 14. The sanctity of life, not common in the ancient world, and in many countries to this day and with many people, uh, life is cheap. Uh, but it wasn't with this man. Verse 15, and the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king. Now, that language tells us that the other two men gave Elijah the impression they were going to hurt him. And so it's, he said, explicitly told, this man will not hurt you. And maybe, you know, abuse him. Look what they did to Christ when they arrested him. Uh, who was going to stop them? So here's Elijah. He knows the voice of God. These 51 men lived because they were fortunate to have uh, the right command. And that's true on an individual scale, a family scale, a church a government is just a law of life. If you, if, if you have a good leader, you've got a good chance to do some damage to hell. One man saved 50. James, brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, which presupposes he can't turn, some don't turn back. For those who don't believe that, you know, once saved, always saved. And you know what? I believe there's truth in that, but not how it's being presented. Anyway... Let him know that he who turns one sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. I like it. And I know the believers do. Abraham tried to save a whole city. Was not able to. Jonah tried, tried not to save a city and succeeded. What a life. 2 Corinthians 6 we, that we give no offense in anything, that our ministry may not be blamed. You could not charge Elijah with recklessly just slaughtering people, innocent people. That is not what happened. He has a blameless ministry. Verse 16, Then he said to him, Thus says Yahweh, Because you have sent messengers to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron. Again, that name being used in a derogatory way. It's not how the... Philistines lightly refer to, they, you know, Baalzi Bull. Uh, anyway, is here in verse 16, is, because there is, is there because no God in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So the prophet is now telling him to his face. Yeah, that's what I said. This would, I, I sent your messages to say, I'm going to say it again to you. And he, and he delivers the message that God gave him to deliver. The king knows that he just lost 102 men. Um, you, you would think, two-thirds of his company gone, you, you, you would think that he would, you know, parlay. <laughs> like, can we work out a deal here? How about I repent? Uh, but he does not. Verse 17. So Azariah died according to the word of Yahweh, which Elijah had spoken because he had no son, Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. So he was only king for two years, incidentally. 
And as I mentioned, he was Ahab's son. And so Ahab's other son, Azariah's brother, will become king. Now, two kings here named Jehoram, the king in the north and the king in the south. The translators are going to refer to the king in Judah as Jehoram and the one in the south as Joram to try to help us out with that. It would, you know, if you had two men named John, maybe well, you know, one is uh, Jonathan or, or Joe, Joseph, some sort of distinction is made. So the translators are looking out for us. And we're, we're happy about that. If you want, compile a list of errors they've made. And when you get to heaven, <laughs> if you still have the list. All right, um, anyway, verse 18. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaziah, which he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? I like how they word these things. Are they not written? It's poetic and not prose. But uh, it got worse for Azariah, of course, his sins. His sins were written in God's book of remembrance. And this is another message that, you know, it used to be a time in history where people had fear of the consequences of rejecting the gospel. And that's just really, it seems to me, not so much happening nowadays. Isaiah, 50, 60, Isaiah 65, verse 6, Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silence, but will repay, even repay into their bosom. And so this is the history written into Ahaziah. God is saying, well, I'm keeping a written history too. Malachi chapter 3, verse 16. Then those who feared Yahweh spoke to one another, and Yahweh listened and heard them. So the book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear Yahweh and who meditate on his name. And Paul told that to Timothy. Give yourself entirely to the word. Meditate on these things. So we have here in this 18th verse the mention of a separate volume that chronicles the life or the, uh, the reign of, of this king and other kings. It's, a, again, a separate book. It's referred to here as the book of chronicles of the kings of Israel. Well, that informs us that the biblical book of kings that we're studying now is intended to be more than a historical document. God is not trying to say, oh, I want to tell you all about the history of the Jews. God is saying, I'm going to tell you about how I work with evil people, and I'm going to use the history of the Jews to do this. So, in case I've confused you, you, you have this book of kings, the chronicles of the kings, that is not biblical. It's just a historical document, a record of what happened with the kings in Israel. Then you have the book we are reading in our Bible, the books of Kings and Chronicles of Samuel. They are handpicked by God and authored. He's the, he's the editor of the whole thing. And the distinction is, it is spiritual. It's not common information. It's not carnal information. Carnal is not always evil. It just means it's not what God wants or what God's not doing it. God made this book of Kings spiritual, and therefore it is scripture, and therefore we are to extract as many lessons and insights from it as possible to apply in our lives to the glory of Christ, to salvation of souls, to the strengthening of fellow believers. Let's pray.
Our Father, once again, the privilege to be able to open your word and look at it. Uh, We know there are places where there are no Bibles, and there are no Bible teachers, and there are no assemblies of the saints and fellowship of the brethren. May we make the most of these things since we have them. We, We know, Lord, we're not rebuked for having these conveniences, these very nice things. We are challenged, and the first step to acting on any assignment is prayer. But how can we pray unless we understand you better? And that's where your word comes in, and your Holy Spirit. We ask you to get us all home safely tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.